Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 14. That's where we pick it up. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, no doubt we're used to going through much more Scripture, perhaps, in many cases. But Lord, you have slowed us down to see these very fundamental, parliamentary, essential issues in such a way that, Lord, we can really take the time and focus. And so, Lord, I pray today, as we open your word now, that you would profoundly, deeply, personally speak to every one of us. Lord, that you would speak in a manner in which we could hear, and that you would speak information we need to hear, and that you would address not just our minds, but our hearts now. And in that, God, I pray that this would be perfect time. In these 45, 50 minutes, God, minister now in such a way that we will never be the same. So, Lord, save, transform, encourage, strengthen, teach, equip, correct, rebuke. Do all that you intend this time to be. I pray you immerse me in your Holy Spirit so that you would be seen, that you would come upon me, so that you would be the craftsman. I would simply be a tool. Take my lips now and attach them to your heart. And may we have so much fun in your word now. As we commit every moment of this to you, Lord, let this be perfect in depth and in length. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Man will never be the authority. The Scripture is. And the Bible is that for which you are to test all things to hold them true or false. So here's where we are now in Scripture. Four fishermen have now been called out to cast their nets to the bottom of the social sea. And they hauled in then a group of people that you might have said from a society's perspective were in its day the bottom dwellers. That's the disdained, the outcasts, the needies, the throwaways. We have them in our own culture here as well. You see, the culture then had become, though quite politically religious, it had become egocentric and economically driven. Everything was about money. Sound familiar? And because of that, those that couldn't contribute to the dole were considered less important. By the way, I hope you're aware that that was the essence of Hitler's campaign as well. And now these dokes, these, the dark-souled surface dwellers with their long robes and their lengthy prayers, money-driven, heartless, with this only-now-matters mindset, had ruled in such a way that we equated the blessings of God with financial or monetary amassments. Please hear me. God has promised us prosperity. 
But if you believe the best prosperity God has to give you is a Bentley, you are ripping God off. I know people that have Bentleys. I don't know them well. I think they're cautious of me. But they are the least happy people I've met. Through my life, there was a time where I had more money than I thought I could spend, and it was the most miserable time of my life. The very things that people are chasing, thinking that those things are actually, oddly enough, a means to an end, will get them only to find that they're not the end or the means to the end that they had hoped for. And so here you were. Here we were. We were, we were sick, diseased, possessed, addicted, distressed, basket cases, emotionally unstable. Put your whatever, you know, flavor of the day there. But from the perspective of people that were living sort of this wealthy mindset. And again, I'm not telling you that rich people are evil. What I'm telling you is that God has called us to a wealth so far greater that the very thing we possess in Jesus Christ makes us so we don't have to have those things. And if he gives them, they don't become the crutch they would be to others. So here they were, cast off, selling big issues, sitting on street corners looking for the next hit for crack. There they were in the corners, sleeping, you know, somewhere next to the sort of yogurt place, hiding from the rain in the day, looking in bushes, tucking themselves away. And we don't get we don't get eye contact with people like that. Right. Because after all, we know that if we do, we know they're going to ask for something. And then we're in that awkward place of actually saying no. Or worse yet, lying and saying we don't have change or whatever the case is. And they know it. And Jesus comes in these fishermen with stinky hands and calloused fingers and that aren't afraid of the social dregs, perhaps. All they knew how to do was throw their net to the bottom and pull it in, and that's all they were doing. Imagine if we had that mindset as Christians and we went out and said, who's the worst of the worst? Because when God touches such a life like that, everybody stands up and takes notice. It was Paul, Saul originally, but Paul was the one who said, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, that Christ Jesus died to save sinners, of whom I am, in the Greek words, arche, like we get architect. Arche means primary, chief, the first. Paul says, Christ died to save sinners, of whom I was the very worst of them all. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited patience, as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. What Paul said is, God saved me so you couldn't say God wouldn't save you. And with that, now Jesus is healing and everything is transforming because though the tide seems to be that those dark-hearted social servers at the top of the surface are kind of running things, the tide is about to change. And now Jesus goes, and as they had lived for the moment, no connection to eternity, all religion was about the here and the now, all of a sudden, Jesus looks at this group of people and there's piles of chains from ex-demoniacs and there's piles of crutches and cots from ex-paralytics. And you'll look and you realize there's piles of needles and pornography. You get it. And Jesus looks and everyone is staring at him with this, who in the world am I now? All I know is what I was. I knew what it's like to be addicted. I know what it's like to be angry. I know what it's like to hate. I know what it's like to be tattooed in my soul with the very venom that I had felt inflicted upon me and now inflicted on other people. I know that. But now all of a sudden I've been touched by Jesus. And the only thing I'm familiar with is what I'm not anymore. 
So in the world am I? But Jesus doesn't look and teach the masses here. He sits down. And as he sits down, the tide or the current splits. And there will be those who all they were concerned about was the malady. They were just like the religious leaders caught up in the, well, now is the important. Just now. And now I was a leper, now I'm not. Now I was an addicted thing, and now I'm not. Now I was a maniac, now I'm not. And that's good enough. I'm good enough to not have to go and get another hit of crack. I'm good enough not to go and try to find that heroin. I'm good enough to not get in another fight. I'm good enough to God kind of healed my marriage or took away the warrant or whatever he did, and that's good enough. And that group, by the way, stays as a multitude. But Jesus sits down, and as he sits down, another group steps forward. This is a group, by the first time we read not only the word multitude, we also read the word disciple. And a disciple is not a fancy thing. You you could go to cults today. There are all kinds of places, and they'll try to use that word as a sort of a a way to screw you into their church and make sure, man, if you know, hey, if you're here, you're a disciple. You go somewhere else, I really don't think you're anything. And and, and understand, all a disciple is mathitikos, like we get the word mathematic. It just means student. And understand, there were those that were like, you know what, all I just want is Jesus. I think I'm pregnant. God, help me. You know, God, I think I may have a disease. You know, and we come to him and sort of foxhole confession and he touches our life at a moment like that often and then after that we're kind of like see you next trial but there was another group when Jesus sat down because we know culturally when someone sits down like this a ravi a master a teacher that that well his disciples those that wanted to hear what he had to say and not just wanted to touch well they came forward and now that second current these people that are actually seeking something so much more than just the now moment go, all right, well, teach me, Jesus. Make me different. And it's this group that Jesus sits with. And he goes, you know what you are now? He doesn't say it to the multitudes, but he says it to his disciples. He says, you're blessed. That's what you are now. You're blessed. I mean, you know what it's like to not be full of yourself. That's poor in spirit. You know what it's like to mourn over that sinfulness that made you that way. You know what it's like then to actually feel meekness, to say, I've got power, but it needs to be handed to someone other than me. You know what it's like then to hunger and thirst, crave to be made right. And you know what it's like because of that then to actually start issuing mercy on others. Because you've seen that great mercy on yourself. And you know what it's like then to want to go out and change people as a result of that, to actually be people now who are actually pure in heart. Man, what I want, God, is so much more than just to be pure in body or whole in body. I want to be literally single-hearted. Could you imagine? No complicated love affair with God where there's like God on the side. It's like, I just want you to be my consuming passion. And with that then, we become... Well, become peacemakers. I just want you to know that peace I have in Christ. Now understand, peace is not great cosmic mellowness. The world redefines every term. Peace is two things that were once at enmity with each other, now united. The Greek word, erene, like as in Wananati's daughter, erene. And the word is to be, comes from the word eras, which means to join. And it isn't like, I just want you to be like, bro, you're, you're like, things are rough for you, man. I just want you to be like, at peace. I'm like, you're fighting God, and you need to actually be at peace with that, because that's where everything changes. But now, as he starts to talk about what we were individually, he starts to talk about what we are corporately as a church, as a body. 
Because there's more than just getting that identity of yourself. See, Christ hasn't called us to be mavericks for the Messiah. You know, loose cannons for the Lord. He's called us to be a family. He's called us to actually get some form of identity among ourselves. This is the body of Christ. And he uses two analogies. The first, of course, is the salt of the earth. And that's what we looked at last week. Now, oh no, please understand, the is a definite article. And what that means is you're the only. Jesus looked at the church, his disciples, those that were willing to step forward and sit at his feet as he taught, as he gave us his truth. And he says, listen, you're the only salt this earth has. And we started to comprehend that aspect. And we looked even in some ways at the, some of the medical things that they wouldn't have known that we know now. Hey, I've got to be honest about this. I mean, as we talked about how salt was so much more than NACL, so, you know, sodium chloride that we kind of use as table salt, and it had at least 84 different other things that came with it, including, by the way, high uh, qualities or quantities of potassium and magnesium and bits of zinc. And I started to think about things like when people get sick, how they try to add zinc to a lot of things. It's vitamin C and zinc, vitamin C and zinc. Interesting, because if we actually had salt like we did back then, I wonder what the difference was, because those things actually genuinely contributed to our autoimmune system. So, for what it's worth, you know, England's such a great place because it's so green, it's verdant. And, and, and interestingly, over the last, the last, I don't know, two, three months, I've been really suffering in regards to the areas of sort of allergies or whatever. I've gotten bronchitis and all kinds of things that kind of come from it. And you know what? I just said, and they give, they give you all those things. Put this up your nose, stick this in your lungs, you know, whatever. And, you know, by the time you're done, it's like, I don't even know. I'm glad I don't have to drive at this moment. But I'm like, you know what, I'm going to try to do what I saw in Scripture. I'm going to just try to see if I could use the proper balance. So I started doing some stuff with magnesium and just taking proper vitamins to include, to balance out what I was looking at with table salt. Interesting, I've gone off of every one of those things, and I'm perfectly fine. Now, I'm not saying this is like the miracle, let's just start selling the product. The point is, is that I was just seeing what Scripture was doing. I was just trying to do it. But now he turns to us and says this. Now, when he said you are the salt of the earth, literally in the scripture, he says it this way in the Greek. You are the only salt this earth has. Gi, like geology is the word for earth. And he says when the salt loses its saltiness. And the word, remember, is moranos, like we get the word moron from it. Heedless, unwilling to listen or obey. Literally says this. You cannot be heedless to me and be salt. You cannot deafen your ears to me. Deaden yourself to my convictions and my leading and be the salt I've called you to be. You know, you're only, the only thing the church will be good for at that point, when it's disconnected from eternity, is to be cast out and thrown underfoot by men. And certainly as we look at our culture here, that's what we see. Hey, can I just say this really quick and we'll get into our text because we need to. We've had the privilege, of course, of being able to serve in some communist countries. And when you look at a communist country, it doesn't work. Forgive me for saying it, but it doesn't work. And the reason is everyone can't be equal because even if everyone was equal, somebody has to oversee everyone being equal. And how does that make them equal? I hope, that didn't, I hope I didn't lose you with that. But the idea of it is sit down, shut up, don't rock the boat, don't dent the norm. Let's just kind of keep everyone in kind of a common thing. Well, one of the ways you kind of had to do that first is you had to remove God because God is a definite assault to the concept and idealism of communism. Interestingly enough, the only real communism there could be would be if we were all completely saved and spirit-filled, because then we actually would share everything. We see that in Acts. It didn't last long, but it was great when it happened. 
When we came here, what was one of the first things we started, I'm just praying, God, show us the society here and how to care to sort of safeguard ourselves from the mindset of society and the traps. And as I started praying, one of the things the Lord started showing even recently was this very thing, that when you remove God, the fact that you were made intentionally by a God who only makes masterpieces, he doesn't make mistakes, and let me just say, you will not be his first one, then it's clear that there is a greatness God placed in you that's uniquely yours, bespoke to you individually. And if you remove that, and what we are is just sort of a, a happenstance miracle of a, or we can't use that word, but a fortuitous set of dividing cells that grew into what you are, then how could you be any more special than anyone else? But from God's perspective, and you were created to be with him, you're magnificent in his sight, and he can't stop thinking about you. And I realize what happens. Then it's like, let's be honest, to be outstanding in our culture here would be bad even if you were outstandingly good. There's something uncomfortable about standing out from the crowd. And yet he's called every one of us to. And that is an assault now to what he tells us here. So listen, you are the light, not a light. And it is important to recognize, even from the very beginning of this, from the onset, what's clear is the only light that's, that the, the, this, by the way, and the word here for world is different than the word for earth. When it says salt of the earth, the word for world here is the word cosmos. Like we get cosmic, you know, like co- cosmic from it. This is, listen, you are the only light this world is going to have. This is it. You're it. You are it. And I started to wonder on a couple of things. First of all, we're probably aware of the fact you were never created for darkness. You're probably aware of that. But I, I wonder what it was like. I'm, I'm laying awake this morning and I'm, I'm contemplating. One of the things we're going to see, by the way, is that light is dominant. For instance, we'll see that in 1 John 1, 4 and 5 when it says light shone in the darkness and the darkness could not comprehend it. The word is katalambano. It literally is a wrestling term. Two guys are trying to get a hand on each other and one guy gets that hand so he can take the guy down. Well, understand that term is the term he uses and the idea of it is that light shone in the darkness and the darkness couldn't even get a grip on light to take it down. It was helpless. Light is dominant. But what if... For one moment, work on this with me for a moment. What if just today, until midnight tonight, darkness was the dominant? You know what that would mean? Consider this for a moment. What that means is that no light could pierce through it. The sun couldn't get through it. You couldn't turn on a, a torch because it couldn't shine through it. If darkness was the dominant, think about what that would do to you right now. First of all, do you think you could get home? No lights. We're talking no lights here. Do you think the trains would run? Do you think the buses would run? Now, unless you live like right across the street, it's fairly possible you wouldn't make it home tonight. Nor would I. What would guide you? Your feeling. That's the only thing that's left would be your feelings. You couldn't, I mean, it isn't like you could like do like sonic echo things like, Ca-ca! Hmm, okay, that sounds like a wall's over here. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm not that kind of bat. Now, Daniel might be that kind of Batman, but I'm not. You kind of have to do that feeling thing, and you'd have to be led by your feelings. Think about how fearful you would be. How unsure you would be. How undefined everything around you would be. 
How scary that would be. Nobody would be looting anything because you wouldn't even know what window you're punching through. could have been your own. You could have been punching through the police station window. You probably wouldn't want that. Pretty much all that would be left to do would be to sit still and just pray for light. And do you realize from a spiritual perspective, that's what the world is living in? Just from a spiritual perspective, that's what life is like. Some of you, because I know this, you've come to know Christ as of recent here. Some of you know darn well that because you've lived most of your life in that. And you were led the same way by your feelings. It wasn't necessarily what you saw that was clear, what you heard that was clear. You just kind of went by your feelings and hoped that it worked out. And nothing was clear, nothing was defined. Listen, darkness will never be, glory to God, will never be the overcomer of light. Darkness will only be the absence of it. And that is important to note. So when someone says, if you are a Christian, beloved, and someone says, oh, you're in London or you're in wherever, Brixton, Hackney, wherever you want to put it. Oh, isn't that a dark place? Do not be ashamed to say, not if I'm there. That's not haughty. Jesus lives inside of you, Holmes. Think that through. And if darkness cannot overcome the light and Jesus lives inside of you, work that through. It cannot be dark if you're there. That's why we don't sing that song. And it's like, you ever like listen to some worship songs and like so much of it's so good. And then like one line, you know, oh, that blew the whole thing. And we're singing this one, you know, I was in this one place and we're singing a song and then they go, when I stumble in the darkness. What? Hmm, not, not getting that. Not getting, I'll call. But anyways, listen, this is what the psalmist said about it. He says, listen, as far as you're concerned, Jesus, the Lord, he's saying, listen, even darkness is light around you. And it's like, it's like, she's like, there's no place you're going to go and it's going to be dark. The same way that if you carried a torch around, it's not going to be dark where it is. So listen, I want to walk us through five key points in regards to light in this. Get back into our text and drive this through. But there's some things that I've noticed about this. And here's some things, by the way, for what it's worth, from a medical perspective. And if, if I lose you in this, that's okay. Forgive me. Subcutaneous synthesis, for instance. And you were thinking, I knew he would go there first. The idea of that is that your body was created actually to react to sunlight. Now, I want you to think, what is the light of the cosmos? Because that's the word that's used here. It's the sun. It is important to recognize. It's not just light bulbs. I mean, obviously, that wasn't invented for, well, for at least 1,800 years. Or I should say at least 1,700 plus years. Your body, when it actually hits sunlight, produces vitamin D. Many of you are familiar with that. That vitamin D is very fundamental because it actually modifies and balances the amount of calcium that gets into your system. And that's really important. Too little of it and your bones crumble to dust. Too much of it and you start growing new bones. Not a good idea. Unless you want to like look like a unicorn, it's pretty good to actually not have that. That's called, before it's worth, vitamin B3. So what happens when we live in a place, of course, where we're much more familiar with the slate gray than sky blue? The good news is it still breaks through it. But it's important to recognize we try to take vitamin D supplements. The D, by the way, is a D2, not D3. And it actually, if you OD on that, by the way, OD on that D, it'll actually destroy your liver. That's just kind of key to note. 
No, I'm not telling you to throw away all your milk and all that other stuff that has it. What I'm telling you, though, is, is that you really do, we really do need to get natural sunlight in there somewhere. When we're out in sunlight, calcium absorption, by the way, goes to its proper rate, and it has a direct effect then on our kidney and liver, uh, kidneys and liver, which, of course, are toxin filters. It stimulates your mental activity, as you're probably aware of the blood flow. And also, by the way, because there are cycles to the sun and moon, which are very key, during the time you're out in the sun, your brain reacts through your eyes, through your ocular receptacles, or receptacles. What it does is it actually creates, it sort of engages a machine that produces melanin when you sleep at night, a melatonin. And melatonin is very fundamental in this because melatonin, by the way, is the very thing that gives you a decent deep sleep. You ever like sleep for days and you feel like you haven't? Now, granted, you're out in the sun too long and there's some problems with that. Like, for instance, you will want to sleep because you give yourself heat stroke. But that's another story. It is important to recognize that your blood flows properly, that your brain actually engages so that at night it releases melatonin, which, not, by the way, not only simulates better sleep, but it also, by the way, is the most fundamental thing for controlling particular mood swings. Therefore, it becomes a balancer for everything from endocrine to hormone releases. Those rhythms, by the way, called entrainments, then, of course, are going to be synchronized with that daily light. Neoendocrine excretion of melatonin, then, by the way, what it does is it actually kills, there's sort of a, there is an organ back here in the back of your brain, and then there's one actually over here, and those particular things, by the way, actually control your metabolism as well. Those photoreceptors, by the way, in your retina are the very things that attract to it. Now, listen, people took that and ran with it. For instance... It is still to this day the most fundamental way of treating neonatal jaundice. In other words, your baby's born yellow. Is your liver and kidneys are not functioning the way they should. There's a particular chemical called bilirubin. And bilirubin, by the way, actually concentrates in some children. By the way, our oldest daughter was born a jaundice, which was actually, in my opinion, cool. She just looked tan, but it wasn't very cool if it had gotten worse. And so what they do is they actually put her in then something that actually has a light that has much more broad spectrum uh, waves to it. And the reason for that, by the way, is that that particular like natural sunlight, what it does is it actually bleaches the bilirubin and then ultimately destroys it until the liver and kidneys are strong enough to be able to produce what is necessary. Those photosynthesizers, by the way, also help advocate your autoimmune system in such a way that they're actually, in essence, soldiers are on call when things come at you. It's kind of a nice thing. In Russia, coal miners were actually given subthermal doses, by the way, of ultraviolet light, thinking it would protect them from what is called pneumoconiosis. Perhaps you're familiar more with it called black lung disease. Egyptians used a plant, by the way, it was called Ami, uh, I should probably make sure it says that, Ami Majislin, and it's important because this particular chemical is still used today there were some particular doctors, uh, for what's with Johnny Parrish, Thomas B. Fitzpatrick, and his crew uh, from the Massachusetts General Hospital that actually took these things, processed it, and use it, by the way, as the most fundamental treatment to this day for psoriasis. Some of you have actually probably gotten that treatment. I'm not saying it because I look at you and think, well, that person has psoriasis. But it's like that is what they use as the most common treatment for psoriasis, which is a skin disease. They also use it for, for instance, epidermal herpes, the kind of things where there are sort of lesions on your skin because what it does is, is that your body starts to produce the vitamin D and your skin thickens in direct sunlight. So rickets, of course, particular kind of lupus vulgaris, which is basically tuberculosis of the skin. 
a Danish doctor, by the way, named Dr. Niels Finzen, uh, or Finzen, developed a particular lamp, a UVS lamp, by the way, and won the Nobel Peace Prize for it to actually deal directly with things like lupus uh, vulgaris and rickets. And he found, by the way, and of course it was great, but let's get back to something much more fundamental. Uh, let me just say it this way. Sunlight, God created it in proper dosage for it to benefit you. Everything from your particular countenance to the way that your skin functions, to the way that your brain functions, to the way that your autoimmune system functions, the body functions much better in that light. But do this. If you have your Bibles, go to the first three verses of Scripture because this is where we start to see the, the beauty in God's light. God knew what he was doing. What was the first thing God invented? Light. Do you think that's kind of important? God just kind of knew that if he didn't have light, life wouldn't really exist the way we know it. This is what it says in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out form, without form, and void and darkness was over the face of the earth. And the Spirit of God, first thing we see that's starting to happen, the Spirit of God was hovering, or literally undulating, moving is the point, um, over the face of the waters. And I love, people love to go all over the place. That God's Spirit was dancing, God's Spirit was doing the hula. This crazy, in the simplest of it, God's Spirit was moving. Then God said, let there be light, Two words, by the way, literally the words are light be and light was. God saw the light, saw it was good. And notice what happened next. God divided the light from the darkness. Follow me on this process for a moment and we'll kind of then go quickly through scripture. But follow me in this. Here was the idea that there was a place where there was nothing. There was darkness. There wasn't light. And the first thing God did is he brought light. But no, that wasn't the first thing. The first thing was that the spirit of God moved. Did you notice that? The Spirit of God moved. The second thing that happened was that light. No, actually, the second thing that happened is that God's word went forth. Did you notice that? The Spirit of God moved. Then God's word went forth. Then light came. And then life. No, there's one more thing. God separated the light. Then came life. Listen, God's Spirit moved. God's word went forth. God brought forth light. God separated the light. And then came life. Can I say that's the very thing I'm praying here in our country? That God's spirit would move. Here's the thing. We can so pervert that. What we want when we say, oh God, we want your spirit to move, is we want the holy heebie-jeebies. Now, I'm not against having an experience with God. I actually am I'm totally cool with that. But if that's the only thing I want God to have, his holy spirit move in me, that's so selfish. I'm like, you know, God, all I really want from the moment is to bark, yell, scream, whatever, levitate. I want to woo! So that I know I've been here with you. Well, you know, if your relationship with anyone is based only on what you could physically experience, isn't that a cheap relationship? If that's the only reason you're with them? But I want God's Spirit to move for this, that His Word would go forth, that He would bring light, and in bringing light, separate that light, and then bring life to people who are walking in darkness, just as Isaiah said, that those who were walking in darkness, a great light has dawned upon them now. Those who were in the valley of the shadow of death, great light has dawned. And that's the problem with these people, that they were coming and they were starting to see that. So listen, this is what God wants even for you. Is that if you're at the place, like, you know, I know that the Lord's brought light into my life. I've seen the truth of the gospel. I know that. Well, then trust the fact that he's going to want to separate that light so that it can actually go and bring forth life. So listen. 
five really quick things that light sensed is doing scripture. One is light abides. We see the light abided in Genesis one. We see the light abided, by the way, in John 1, 4, when it says that in him, Jesus was life and that life was the light of men. We read in first Timothy six sixteen that God dwells. Jesus dwells in inapproachable light. Have you ever had something so bright that you recoil from it? That's the idea. It tells us in 1 John 1, 5 that this is the truth, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In other words, God is only light, 100% light, no dark in that. Not only did light abide, but also light divides. In Exodus chapter 10, if you remember, when God was pouring forth his punishments, or if you will, his plagues, it was light that separated Israel from the Egyptians. They had light. The Egyptians, on the other hand, had a darkness they could feel. Could you imagine a darkness they could feel? In Exodus chapter 14, verse 20, a cloud went and separated the pursuing Egyptian army from the Israeli people. And that cloud brought darkness upon the Egyptians, but light upon the Israelis. And can I say light divided? In John chapter 3, verse 19, we'll see this applies in a couple of these. We read this. This is the verdict. That light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who practices or lives or has a lifestyle practices evil hates the light, won't come into the light, lest their evil deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been wrought in God. So here's the idea. Here's a simple image. God shines his light, and as he shines his light, there are going to be two groups of people. Some they are going to say, oh, I don't want to step in that. If I step in that, I know what's going to happen. You're going to see that what I'm doing is really evil. You're like, you know, I'm cool, man. I'm a good person. God's like, well, let's shine the light of Scripture on that. No, 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 no. No, I'm a good person. Why? It's amazing how we could be good because we haven't. Have you learned that yet? You know, I'm a good person because I haven't. You haven't what? Murdered, raped, you haven't, that's, you know. It's funny, is I've met actually rapists that actually say the same thing when we've, we've gone to prisons. I'm a murderer, I've only killed a couple people. I'm a good person compared to that guy. You see how many people he's killed with his bare hands. I mean, I used a tool, I was merciful, I killed them quickly. I'm thinking, whoa, where's the scale in this? He says, listen, but there are those that will step in the light and say, hey, look at warts and all, faults and all. All right, just take me. Just take me as I am. And there's a difference in that. Boy, there's such a beautiful piece there, isn't there? We have nothing to hide. You have no thing. You're like, oh, man, if God discovers this, the deal's off. The good news is he knows everything about us. And there's something beautiful about that. So here's the crazy part for me in ministry and for you called the ministry, beloved. It's like light is shining. And as the light is shining, people are doing this. They're walking around with their eyes closed because they don't want to see that. And we think that our ministry is to tell people how stupid they are for walking around with their eyes closed. I mean, they're bumping into things. They're falling into stuff. Their whole life is one series of mishaps after another. And we go, oh, stupid, open your eyes, as if that works. Can I just say maybe what we really should do? No, definitely what we should do is give them a good reason to open their eyes. The whole idea of the tabernacle was that the wall that separated was a thin film of linen so that people could kind of hear this celebration and go, what's going on there? Whatever that is, I, I want that. And we go, well, that's a who. And you need to get the who, not the that. So hear me in this. Light divides. And I want to warn you that that's the case. You can't dwell in darkness if you're light. 
Now, we're familiar with that because it tells us, by the way, in Romans 13, 12, to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. I love that term. Second Corinthians six fourteen. Some of you have had that quoted at you, I imagine. It says, don't be unequally yoked with, together with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness and lawlessness? And what communion has light and darkness? They don't have anything in common. So here you are, you're a Christian, and you meet that person, and though you say what you're looking for is a godly person, they're too cute, and that cute overrides the real things that you tell your Christian friends. Like, you don't understand how good I'm going to look next to this person. God's like, what do you have in common? The only thing, it's like, here you are trying to be light to a person, you are going to get on their nerves, and you should. They're trying to walk around in darkness. You ever just walk in a room and someone freaks out on you, and you're like, I haven't even done anything yet. Because whether you know it or not, if you're walking with Jesus, you're shining light, and some people aren't going to be happy about it when you walk in the room. Like, oh, get out of here. Look who's here. So light abided, light divided. Third, light guided. In Exodus 13, 21, it tells us that God led them by a pillar of fire at night to give them light. In regards to his tabernacle in Exodus 25, 37, he says, I want you to make a lampstand, and I want you to make it. It's the only light in the tabernacle. And if you didn't have that on, and it was always to be lit, if you didn't have that on, you could never make it to the Holy of Holies. You could never be in the presence of God if that were the case. In Psalm 74, 18, or 78, sorry, 14, it says, In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and at night with a light of fire. But one of my favorite verses is Psalms 43, 3, when he says, Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your tabernacle. So light guided, but not only did light abide, and not only did light divide and light guide, but it also provided. It was his word, by the way, we read. First it was the Lord who will light my lamp. God will enlighten my darkness, much like what Jesus is saying here. It's Psalm 18:28. But it says that the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 27, 1. It's Psalm 119, 105 that says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 119, 130, it tells us, The entrance of your words gives light. So how has light been provided for us? Well, it was simple. Jesus said it himself in John 8, 12. When he said, I am the, not a, the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. You cannot walk in darkness if you follow him, but you'll have the light of life. John 9, 5 will reiterate it, this time healing a man born blind. It's as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. In John 12, verse 26, I'm sorry, 46, it says, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should never abide in darkness. Now, get context and we're almost through this. And I want to say this like we need to, this is not a box to tick. I want us to grab a hold of what he's saying. The point was, if you're familiar with John 8, a woman that was caught in adultery was thrown at his feet. And man, people love to sound smart about things that the Bible's silent about. I've kind of learned this through the years. If the Bible remains silent on something, silence must be the best option. But they come and they bring the woman. Leviticus is clear that if a couple is caught in the act of adultery, they're both to be brought out and stoned. And of course, my first thought is, well, where's the fella? And But she's brought out, thrown in the very act. You can imagine what condition she's in, what she may look like. And she's thrown down at Jesus' feet as he's teaching in the morning in the temple. So they brought this gal, half naked or so, into the temple where Jesus is teaching. And they know 
that they're going to trap Jesus with this. And they say, Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law says we should stone someone like this. What do you say? And I can tell you, every time I read that, my heart breaks. And the reason isn't just for the woman. It's that these people knew that Jesus' heart was so tender to the sinner that he'd want to see her helped. But he was also so true to the truth that he couldn't go against the law. I, I, I imagine when they had a board meeting about this before this, before they found a woman or trapped a woman or whatever, that they were convinced this was the checkmate to Jesus. Well, he's stuck. I mean, on one side of it, I mean, he, he's going to have compassion. And if he just says, well, stoner, well, then clearly he won't have that tenderness anymore to the sinner and he'll lose his following. But on the other side, if he says, we'll let her go, well, then he breaks the law and we can stone him and we have no recourse because he's a lawbreaker. Ha, 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 ha. We've got him. So Jesus gets down and starts to write in the sand. And of course, that's where everyone loves to talk about what he wrote, so, but the Bible never says. I've heard one great preacher. I was born, I don't know if you know, I was born in Chicago. So every once in a while, I love to hear preachers from there. They just make me smile. He's like, let me tell you something. I know what he was writing in the ground. He was writing Jerisha, Shaniqua. And I'm like, hmm. Because all those people want to throw those rocks. If they go, oh, Denise, I'm guilty. Well, listen, I guarantee you a Middle Eastern rabbi 2,000 years ago was not writing Shaniqua in the sand for the guys that want to throw rocks. It doesn't say. But I'll tell you one thing it did do. It slowed them down. They were in a fury. And he had to slow the pace a bit. Finally, he stands up and he goes, okay, I'll tell you what. Go ahead and kill her. But only if you don't have any sin, then, then you're good. And then he gets back down and he writes in the sand again. We don't read, by the way, that anyone actually looked at what he wrote in the sand. But we do read that they listened. And we read from the oldest to the youngest, they all dropped the rocks and walked away, convicted. Hey, unbelievers can be convicted too. Don't miss that. Interesting, by the way, by the next chapter, they'll pick him up again, but this time to throw at Jesus. But what I love is that Jesus takes the woman by the hand. I mean, imagine being the gal for a moment. She is waiting for that first rock, right? Especially when Jesus goes, okay, go ahead. But. And no one, no rock. And all of a sudden she hears these footsteps and they walk. I mean, wouldn't you just be in a duck and cover waiting for the end? And then he finally raises up. The first thing she sees is his face. She says, has anyone condemned you? No. You know, what's worse is there was one person without sin there, Jesus. But wouldn't that have been an awful scene? That he without sin throw the first stone. And the woman waits and then Jesus picks up a rock. Bam! Yeah, that would have really ruined the whole point of it. The point was that the one person who was actually innocent actually withheld it because he offered mercy instead. He says, listen, has anyone condemned you? No. Well, I don't condemn you. And that's the one that really matters. He goes, now, Go. Don't do this anymore. But then he turns and he says, I'm the light of the world. Well, there's a fun moment to say it. When light got shown on that moment, what we saw is that the law without mercy is merciless on everyone. We can't use the law as a cricket bat on another person and expect it not to be smacking us in the head. One of the first things we used to teach in self-defense is whatever weapon you try to use on someone, if it gets taken away, it gets used on you. We all need mercy. Every one of us. 
And the most powerful thing in that is that Jesus says, I'm the light. And if you stand before Jesus, you have nothing but please give me mercy and grace because I don't deserve anything else. I don't, I'll never deserve that. But you are merciful and gracious and I'll gladly take it for me and for those around me. But there was one other thing. Light collided. And that's kind of a very fundamental issue on all of this. Listen. In Ecclesiastes 2.13, it tells us that wisdom excels folly like light excels darkness. And there was our point again, is that light is the dominant, not darkness. And again, John 1.5, light shone in the darkness, but the darkness could not literally overcome it or comprehend it, get a hand on it. In John's case, I'm sorry, in uh, Paul's case, as he was seeking to have people killed, a light shone on him and knocked him off of his high horse, if you will. He'll recount that, by the way, again in Acts 22 and in 26 and say that it was brighter than the new day's sun. When Peter was arrested, it was a light that shone in prison as the angel set him free. When Paul talked about what God had called him to, he said this, was to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and the inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ and him. In Ephesians 5, it tells us this, to have no... Is verse 11. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Expose the deeds of darkness? We'd rather gossip about them. But it's shameful even to speak of those things which were done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, because whatever makes manifest is light. And Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2.9. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. We were once darkness. Now we're light in the Lord. Now walk with me through this text, will you please? And do this. Daniel, would you, if you would, would you shine up one of those pictures, that first picture? You're the light of the world. You're the only light this cosmos has. And he immediately goes from that now to a city set on a hill, cannot be hidden. What a strange place to go, but not for the fishermen who understood it, not for the people who lived in the area. I just kind of wanted to point out something here because I don't want you to kind of miss this because this is what they knew that we might not. That living in first century, you're probably aware of the fact that, listen, when the sun goes down, light goes down. There's not a lot of light. Unless it's a Roman city, and unless that Roman city has reason to stay open, pretty good possibility what you're going to find is it's just going to be dark. Here's the problem. Fishermen fish at night. And if fishermen fish at night, do you really want a lit torch on your wooden boat while you're fishing? How long do you want to hold on to that? So understand there was something interesting that happened at the Sea of Galilee. At the Sea of Galilee, the fishermen would fish up here because that's, by the way, where everything is. Capernaum would be about right here. And then right over here is Bethsaida, where the fishermen were from. But what the problem is, is that, well, what would guide you? I'll tell you what would guide you. The moon. Because the moon would be rich enough and bright enough so that you could use that in position by timing to know how to get home. I mean, if it's pitch black, and some of you have been with us at the Sea of Galilee, if it wasn't for the city of Tiberias today, you wouldn't know where in the world you were. So what happens if you have one of those nights where there is no moon, where it is pitch black, and you've been fishing? How do you find your way home? Well, interestingly enough, Rome started a project, and the project was right up here called Cephid. 
Safed was a city. And you can start flipping through these to show some pictures of it. Thank you, Daniel. Well, what happened is, is that this particular town of Safed, notice, by the way, it's roughly at about 1 o'clock. I'm sorry, about 11 o'clock to the Sea of Galilee. Well, it was built in a place, and of course you're aware that when you're going to build a city, putting it up on a hill is a smart idea, so that if somebody tries to attack you, you have gravity in your favor. And you'll see that again here. Go ahead and that. Oh. And what you'll find is that they built this city up on a hill. And as they built this city up on a hill, they actually used slaves, and to use the slaves, they actually then worked all night. That was so beneficial for the fishermen because what that meant was there was constant light. What you're looking at here now are the ruins of Safed. Can you see how that relates to the Sea of Galilee? Go to the next one, Daniel, if you would, please. Oh, look. (laughs) That's a creative way to do that. Thank you. This is point. See that right there? Safed. Do you see this? At night, if it wasn't for Safed, on any night where there was no moon, you wouldn't be able to find your way home until sunrise. But it was because of this, the, the fishermen could get oriented and be able to see this. See how fundamental that would be? By the way, interesting, because it says a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Set on, by the way, for what it's worth in our text here, the term set on is literally to be appointed or destined for what it's worth. The word hidden is the word we get. It's crypto. We get the word crypt from it. City police, like we use, for instance, metropolitan. But the word power is the word dunamis. Perhaps some of you are familiar with it from Acts 2. Let me put it all together. This is what happens. A city that has been appointed or destined to be on the top of the hill, you have no power to encrypt it. Here's the problem. You are part of that city now. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, there are all kinds of people out there trying to figure out what way is home. And you've got people out there pandering their literature. You've got people dancing around with their drums, trying to tell you that that's the way home. And oddly enough, we are the only ones who actually can guide a person properly home because we aren't a light, but we are the light of the world. And because we're the light of the world, we're supposed to be the ones solid and movable and uplifted. And here's the problem. It's like, listen, If you're going to be lit, you're going to be lifted. And if you're going to be lifted, you're going to be lifted for the purpose of helping people get home. Remember how light guided? What did it guide? It guided people to the presence of God. That's the beauty in this. And understand, there are people out there, and you know this, because there's a battle inside you. The person's like, you know, I've been drunk all night, and I'm miserable. You know, I don't know who I slept with last night. Or maybe it's just that, you know what, I, I made another million last night, but I'm still miserable. I've got another master's and I still feel stupid. I've got, I've got, I feel like I've gotten everything and I'm nowhere with it. And then you sit and you, there's a part of you that says, inside the Spirit of God says, Say it! Just say it! And you're like, oh, that's too bad. You must be guides. Instead of actually being the light God called us to be, to be like, you know what? Let me show you where home is because without home, you'll never have the peace. My Jesus died on a cross for you because he knew how miserable life is without a relationship with him. And he created you to be with him. And he rose again to give you a brand new life, beloved. So hear me as we bring this around now. You're the light. And you're the only light this cosmos has. You are the sun to these people. And can you imagine hiding the sun? 
He goes, let me tell you what it's like. It's like a city on a hill. But that city was ordained to be on that hill. It was destined to be up on that hill. And because it was destined to be up on that hill, why in the world are you trying to put it in a crypt? You're the only living thing in the morgue. Why are you playing dead? We as the church, I'm not talking about just us individually. As the church, we are called to be that city on the hill. And the funny thing is we're so caught up in the world around us that we want to be up on the hill. But we want to be up on the hill so that we could feel awesome. Check me out, I'm on the hill. We want to be king of the hill instead of light on the hill. And that's a scary thing because truth be told, there are a whole lot of people right now lost at sea that desperately need to get home. But there's another thing too. He says, no, you don't take a light and you put it under a bushel. And you can almost see Jesus laughing because this is so absurd to him. So look at these with me for a moment. This is a 2,000-year-old lamp. This is what they looked like. And of course, they were filled with olive oil. And as they were filled with olive oil, you took your old clothes because you recycled everything in those days. And you took your old clothes and you ground them up and they become the wick, by the way. And you would dip them in the olive oil. And by the way, usually the olive oil that was in this was a nicer olive oil. You, and no matter how much you mashed it, it was always used for something, down to medicine and things to help you know, cook other fires. Uh, so understand in this, this was the idea was something like this. In a household, in, in a household, he says, if you set this on fire, you have a purpose for it. Now, here's the problem. Today, light is so cheap in our opinion, you can hit a switch and then you leave the room, and that lights are on. Oh, let them burn. Let them burn all night. Right? And sometimes you have that. You have that kind of people. It's like you have the kids are going, how many times do I have to tell you to turn off the lights? Well, it's because we're, we don't see anything happening. But you wouldn't light a light like this because it's on fire, let me remind you. And then leave the room. Now, in our house, the house, by the way, would only be the size of one of these sort of quarters here. So it wasn't like in it, the idea of it was is the moment you lifted it up and you put it up again, just like the city on the hill, it lit up the whole house. He goes, look it, you don't set it on fire to hide it. There's the idea. This, by the way, is a crusader. Uh, looks like a spaceship, in my opinion. Looks like the Starship Enterprise. But this is a crusader uh, lamp as well. Uh, in both cases, they both have the same thing, and they just tried to streamline it a little bit, and you could carry it a little bit, which, of course, comes to what we see with Ebenezer Scrooge, how they've got the handle and the whole bit. But hear me in all of this. This is what he says. I'm going to lift you up, and I want to put you on a hill, and I'm going to build you up so you can be a light to get everyone home. And I'm going to set you on fire, and if I'm going to set you on fire, why would I set you on fire to hide you? To make you blend in with the darkness. You can't blend in with the darkness if you're on fire. Interesting. We want God to set us on fire, but for other reasons. So we could feel warmth. So we could feel God's presence. So we could be confident that the Lord is with us. But truth should be enough for that. We read a scripture it's like, it's clearly in scripture and he isn't lying. So this is how he ends that text. So let your light shine. Don't miss that first word. Let. Do you know what let means? It's going to happen if you allow it. You don't have to make it happen. God's already going to do it. We're like, God set us on fire. What God says is be more transparent. Don't hide it. Let your light so shine. You know, to let your light not shine, you have to actively and consciously stop it. You have to actively hide it or encrypt it versus 
Letting your light shine, the only thing we need to do at that point is be transparent. And if we're going to be transparent, God's going to do the work. And sailors are going to make their way home. You know what's interesting is, look at the two analogies. The first was public, and the second was private. Did you notice that? You need to be able to make your way home, but once you are home, you need to be able to make your way around the home. So that's a city on a hill for the world, and that's a lamp for your home. So let me ask you this. Are you lit up at home? Are you trying to keep that dark so you could still try to do some things there, but then try to get all lit up in a place like this? Let your light so shine so they would see your good works. Literally, they could see that what you're doing is good and glorify your Father in heaven. The end result is not, check out how bright you are. The end result is that they would give God the credit. Wow, look at what God's done. And you say, well, that light of the truth of his word that God wants to shine through you, the beauty of what the risen sun has done inside of you if you've accepted his gift, and he wants to shine that light to the lost to get them home, into the home like this, your homies, to get them deeper. Like in the tabernacle, when we got deeper into the presence of God. So listen as we pray. As we pray today, let me ask you, first of all, have you even accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? I would be foolish to not offer you that. Have you said yes to this? Look, at, it's like this. It's one thing to say, yeah, I, I got Jesus' stats, but that doesn't mean he's come over for dinner. There's another thing. And it's like there are too many people out there, by the way, who seem like they're experts on God, but have never really met him. The expert should be someone who knows him the best, wouldn't you think? And my prayer is, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus, I'm going to give you that choice. My prayer is that you'd say yes. If you have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, can we pray today that as God lifts us, and as he lifts us and lights us, that we will shine the way he intended? Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I thank you so much for the privilege of being able to serve you another day in your word. I thank you so much for the beauty of your word and for what you're telling us in it. And Lord, clearly to the disciples that you sat with and ate with and slept and awoke with and walked with, I recognize, Lord, today that here even in this room, we may be just busy about trying to kind of bank our, hedge our bets for heaven, but not really be used here on earth. What you've made clear is as salt, we are the only ambassadors heaven has. On this earth, and Lord, I pray as well as you call us to be that light, the light. Cause us to shine. We don't have to put out light, squirt out light, force out light, fight out light. Just have to be willing to let you make us transparent. And in doing so, you shine through us. So Lord, I pray that as you lift and as you light, ignite us to bring the world home to you. Ignite us and lift us up so that even in our own homes, people would know how beautiful it is to be with you and to be deeper and more meaningfully in our, meaningful in our walk with you. And with that in mind, God, I just pray as well right now, if there be any who have yet to really say yes to you, 
And I know, Lord, there's so many out around us right now. They're walking in darkness and they don't even know what in the world they're doing. They don't even see what they're doing. God, have mercy and use us, Lord. Before some fake light like the enemy, we read that Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light, but he's a counterfeit. And there's certainly counterfeits out there, Lord, but what's so grievous is how the counterfeits are much more known than the truth. So raise up this fellowship and the fellowships of London to be, a, to be completely faithful to your truth and to be the light you intend for us to be. And if there be anyone here who has not accepted that gift or isn't sure they could be today, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you just to give a confident, resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. That's my words now. And here it is. God, I'm a sinner. Like all men are sinners, I'm a sinner. And that sin makes me stand guilty before you, but you so loved me that you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for me so that his innocence could be given to me as he pays for my guilt on that cross. And when he died there, my guilt was paid in full, buried just as Scripture promised, and just as Scripture promised, he rose again on the third day, offering me new life as my Lord now, as well as Savior. And I say yes. I hand you my life, God, confessing Jesus as my Lord and Savior and ask for you now to make me that light you intend me to be. I don't want to walk in darkness anymore. I'm tired of being afraid. I'm tired of being empty. I'm tired of feeling alone. So I lay my life before you now. Fill it with your light, we pray. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.